Uh, we're so thankful that you're here today uh, at Nona, but we are joined not only in the room, uh, but we are joined by a group of people that join us online. These are people that uh, catch this service while they're traveling, uh, people that we support as missionaries who tune in and still call this place their home church and receive God's word every single week. And we want to make sure that those folks feel warmly welcome. So would you put your hands together and welcome those that are joining us online today? So happy, so happy to have you here. Well, uh, today uh, we are wrapping up our series called Tables, and I have really enjoyed uh, this series. It's been a blast hearing about the informal coffees that people uh, have had as a result of this, uh, this series that we're in, or uh, the ways that small groups have interacted and connected uh, with the teaching, or just the great opportunities in between services to have some breakfast together and to see all of the tables where people are chatting and connecting together. Even just last week, we served 120 more people people last week for breakfast than we did in our first pancake breakfast meeting. We had over 720 meals uh, that were served over the course of those two breakfasts. Can we thank God for the volunteers that put that on? An incredible time. Incredible time. God has really been on the move in the midst of this series. And today we wrap that series up. Last week we learned this, that when we feel like a failure, Jesus invites us to breakfast. And today, Jesus is going to meet us one more time at a table, a table that is incredibly beautiful, but I imagine today is going to challenge some of us to have to reconsider the way we've thought about Jesus, and for others, hopefully inspire us to really believe that he wants us at the table. Today's story really involves table manners, table manners. Um, when I was a kid, I had terrible table manners. They were so bad that my mom threatened me uh, to send me to etiquette school. And uh, I didn't think that that was a real thing, so I decided to try and call her on her bluff. And then I found out between middle school and high school, the summer between my eighth and ninth grade year, that etiquette camp is a real thing you can send your kids to. Did you know that? <laughs> and I went and I went, and I learned how to iron a shirt, and I learned how to set a table, and I learned what all the forks are meant to be used for and what the knives are meant to be used for. I learned how to shake a hand and welcome a guest. I missed the day where you were taught how to tie a tie, and I still don't know how to tie a tie to this day. Um, and I remember absolutely hating that summer. I'm not going to sit here and say it was a great summer because while my friends were going to basketball camp or football camp or going on vacation, I was learning about doilies with Dolores. Like it was not, it was not a great summer. Table manners. A quick raise of hands. I'd love to know if you kind of live with some of these kind of expectations at your table. Uh, first one, just quick raise of hands. Don't pick up your fork until your father picks up his fork. Anybody grow up with that one? Just me. I'm an immigrant. All right, cool. Um, uh, other ones, other ones. Uh, okay, here, here's another one. Raise of hands. Uh, don't ask for dessert until you finish what's on your plate. Yes. Okay. Don't ask to get up from the table unless you're asking to be excused. Yes. Don't put your elbows on the table. Anybody hear that one? Don't put your elbows on the table, which is so frustrating, right? Because when you're a little kid, it's like, how do I get to the food, right? Yeah. <laughs> table manners. Today's story, today's table gathering is going to involve Jesus and a group of people where one breaks every conceivable rule about how to act appropriately at a meal. And I would say this, that if you're a person that's wondered what Jesus thinks about you, or if Jesus could, I don't know, welcome you in based upon your story and the things that you've done, or perhaps you've kind of looked around and wondered, what is Jesus doing about all the craziness I see in the world? This story is a story for you. 
Uh, Philip Yancey writes this great book called What's So Amazing About Grace, and he says this, there's a simple cure for people who doubt God's love and question God's grace, and it is to turn to the Bible and examine the kind of people that God loves. So with that in mind, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 7, and as you do, allow me to pray for our time. Father, thank you for the gift of your grace. God, thank you that as we gather today, you want to show us something about your heart and your character and your nature as we see you at the table. So God, we, we ask that you would pull up a chair to our hearts. Give us a window into what you're doing in our lives and help us see us for who you are. We love you and we thank you. And everybody in this place says, amen. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes today, we're going to see this table uh, unfold through three movements. The first movement is the problem. The second is a parable. And the third is perspective. And so if you're taking notes, that's where we're going to be moving today. And if you're just interested in when I'm going to wrap up, when I get to perspective, we're almost there. All right. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, it says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Now, you need to pause here and understand some context. This invitation by a Pharisee, it seems to be out of the ordinary because what we know in Luke chapter 7 is that six times the Pharisees have been mentioned in this storyline, and every single time they have been at odds with and in opposition to Jesus' work in the mission. In other words, the Pharisees are not friends of Jesus, they are enemies at this point. There's no longer just simple intrigue about who is this, this teacher and this rabbi or this guy who says that he is one of those. They have become to, to realize that this guy, this guy's a threat to the status quo and we don't like him. So when you see in the text that Jesus was invited to the home of a Pharisee, it was not an invitation. It was at worst an interrogation and at best an investigation. Because in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, we find this, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at this point were furious, and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. In other words, let's get Jesus into a room where we can get him to say something that will prove that he's not a prophet, he's not a leader, and we can utilize that as ammunition to, to help, him, uh, help the crowds that are following him break away. Or let's get the receipts that we need to bring it to Rome so that we can show Rome this guy's a threat to the empire, so you should kill him. So this invitation to come have a meal, it's not like an everyday kind of invitation. The goal here is to investigate Jesus, to get some dirt on him so they can get rid of him. And Jesus walks right into the lion's den. We also know that this meal wasn't any meal, it was a formal meal. We know this because the text says that Jesus was reclining at the table. To recline at the table meant that, that this meal had a different kind of energy about it. This was the kind of meal where two different dignified guests or two controversial figures would sit down and the room would be filled wall to wall with people that were leaning in to listen to the conversation. Uh, Jesus would have laid down on something called a triclinium where he would put his left arm down and his feet would face out like on a chase lounge. There'd be a small table in the middle. All of the people that were t communicating would have their faces close to one another and then the room would be filled with people. This was a long meal. It was meant to take hours and the custom was that this was kind of the, the after party that only the special people were invited to, to discuss a teaching that had happened earlier in the day. So imagine Jesus has given a lecture or a teaching, and now this is the Q&A afterward. And people show up 
Because they want to know what Jesus has to say and what the, the Pharisees think about it. It is a full room. The meal is going to take a long time. And Jesus and Simon are going to talk about a lot of different issues. In many ways, it's like a first century live stream where you could hop in to the chat and listen in as two people, controversial figures or diametrically opposed figures, have a debate. This is what's happening over the meal. And it's at this meal that we're introduced to the problem. And the problem, it's not a place, it's not that there isn't any gluten-free bread at the meal. The problem is a person. A person that's introduced to us in Luke chapter 37, chapter 7, verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, would you say that phrase with me on the count of three? One, two, three, a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now this phrase, a woman who lived a sinful life, it is a euphemism uh, for the kind of work that a woman uh, would do in the first century and that women do during this day, oftentimes because of a moral wrong that had been done to them. See, if you were a, uh, if you were a widow, if you had been abandoned, or if you were an orphan and you were a woman, there was no other line of work that you could do in this kind of culture. In fact, uh, scholars tell us that the reason why this existed so much in the first century is because God had given a mandate to the people of Israel to take care of widows and orphans, but they did not do their job. And so women who needed to eat needed to find a way to be able to provide for their families. It reminds me of this City High song. What would you do when there's someone at home crying all alone on the bedroom floor because he's hungry? That's a deep cut for like three of you R&B fans right now. This is what's going on in this picture. I mean, this is a moral wrong, yet this woman is most likely participating in this moral wrong because of a moral wrong that's been done to her. And you'll notice throughout the story that, that Jesus doesn't necessarily excuse it, but there is a great deal of empathy. And I would invite you to have empathy as you think about the woman who's in the room right now. A woman who's, who's looking at Jesus, who's lived a life that we would never want any of our kids to have to live. And we find in verse 38 that as she stood behind Jesus at his feet, she began to weep. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. And at this point, this is now a scandal. It's one thing for this woman to walk into the room and to listen in on the live stream, but it's another thing for her entirely to interrupt the conversation that Jesus is having with Simon in Simon's home. It's another thing for her to begin to weep uncontrollably and, and to do something that would draw attention to herself. It's a completely different thing for her to let down her hair, which in a shame and honor culture was an embarrassment and scandalous and tantamount to rude. It was another thing for her to take an alabaster jar of perfume, which was worth a year's wages. But you think about how much you make in a year. We believe that she either had this perfume because it was a nest egg given to her by her father before he passed, saying, if anything happens, you can use this. Or at worst, something that a client gave to her as a gift because of a particular kind of relationship that he wanted. 
but it's worth a year's worth of wages. And this woman breaks it and pours it all out on Jesus' feet. Like, think about how much you make for a year. And imagine spending it all in a moment on Jesus with no tax break. This is what the woman does. And Simon is upset. I mean, in his home, this kind of woman, she is sinful, she is shameful, and she is wasteful. When the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, verse 39, he said to himself, and I love this, it means he's thinking internally, if this man were a prophet, in other words, not Messiah, not Savior, just bottom of the barrel JV prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And in this moment, the problem The problem leads Jesus to share a parable. A parable. Verse 40, Jesus looks at Simon and he says to Simon, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And I love this because the reason why Jesus has something to tell Simon is because Jesus has read Simon's mind, which is the most prophetic thing you can do. Do you guys see this? While Simon is thinking Jesus is not a prophet, Jesus is like super profiting at the same time. And he tells Simon a story. And remember, the story is not just for Simon, right? The story, while he's eye to eye with Simon, it's for the woman that's behind him who's shocked that Simon has called her out and for a room that has seen what has happened and is wondering what's going on. This isn't a small discussion. This is for everyone to hear. This is a public letter to Simon. And Jesus tells a parable. If you're familiar with our anthology series a couple of months ago, you'll know that a parable is a story that uses a real-life situation to tell a timeless spiritual truth. So Jesus tells a story. He says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. Give me a head nod if you're like, that's a real life story because I know what it's like to owe money to somebody. Yes, right? Like Anybody got a mortgage note? Yeah. Got a car loan? Got a car payment? Got some student loans, right? Yeah, of course. Of course we do, right? And if you're like, I, 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 I can't, I have all of those. It's like, how Dave Ramsey dare you? Like, how, how dare you, right? <laughs> we all know what it's like to owe something. Jesus goes on, one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. In other words, One bought a house in Lake Nona in 2017, and the other bought the same house in 2022. (laughs) And Jesus continues to tell the story. He says, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them, Jesus says, will love him more? And Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And it's in the midst of this story that Jesus is beginning to tease out some elements that would be instructive for us about the heart of God and the character of God. You see, Simon hears the story as a a religious man, and he hears about one who owes 50 and the other who owes 500. But what he misses in the story is that both cannot pay the lender back. 
the situation is that both have defaulted on their loans. Both need forgiveness. And the real moral of this story is not that if you owe God more and do more sinful things, then you'll love God more. It's that no matter who we are, as Romans 3 tells us, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all owe a debt that we cannot pay. We all need a Savior. The way that I think about it often is imagine if Michael Phelps and I were on a boat together. And Michael Phelps got dropped off. 550 miles off the coast of the Pacific Ocean. And I got dropped off five miles off the coast of the Pacific Ocean. Listen, I'm not able to swim five miles and your boy's going to drown. And it doesn't matter that Michael Phelps is a better swimmer than I am. Can Michael Phelps, can Michael Phelps swim 550 miles? No. We both need the same life raft. We both need the same help. We both need the same grace. And the word here for love in the text is not like a, not necessarily an emotion, but, a, but it's an expression of gratitude. Because in the Hebrew and Aramaic, there is no word for thanks or gratitude. So words like love and praise are used. In other words, Jesus is looking at Simon saying, Simon, if two people owe a debt that they cannot pay, who is the one that's going to be more grateful? And Simon says, well, I suppose the one that has more. Which is interesting, right? Because we will only love God to the degree that we know we've been forgiven. This is Jesus' argument. But even deeper than that, we will only love others to the degree we know God wants to see them forgiven. So there's a problem. It's this woman that has interrupted the meal. There's this parable where Jesus talks about two people that owe something they cannot repay which leads to Jesus giving perspective. And the next verse in this text, the next verse in Luke chapter 7, for me, is one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. It just jumps off the page to me when I read it. Verse 44, it says this, Then Jesus turned toward the woman. So remember, the woman has washed Jesus' feet. He's been laying and reclining like this eye to eye with Simon. He shared this story loud enough that everybody in the room can hear it. And then Jesus adjusts his posture to turn his eyes and most likely his back and body from Simon to get eye to eye with this woman. And he asks Simon words that I think are so powerful. He says, Simon, say that sentence with me. Do you see this woman? One more time. Simon, do you see this woman? See, what we see is profoundly impacted by our perspective. In fact, what we see is profoundly impacted by the health of our eyes. Jesus expresses this in Matthew Chapter 7, Jesus reflecting on the eye says that the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your perspective is right, then your vision will be clear. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And this summer, uh, my family and I, we were traveling overseas and uh, I forgot to um, get a new set of contacts. 
And so a couple of days before we're traveling, I'm going to be gone for a number of weeks. I don't have enough contacts. I wear dailies, and I don't have enough to kind of cover uh, the, the trip. So I rush to an eye doctor. I ask for, um, you know, contacts as soon as possible. They say, it's going to take a couple of weeks. And I'm like, well, can I get a couple of extras? And they're like, we'll give you a couple of extras, uh, but you're not going to get these. And the only way that we can ship them is basically to pay X amount. I was like, that's the amount my trip costs. And so uh, we had a friend actually bring these, these contacts down for me. But what I did not plan or prepare, prepare for was that a few days into our trip, I would get a severe eye infection that would not allow me to be able to even wear the contacts that I had. And because I have four delightful children, one of them decided to body slam my glasses and broke them. And so I am blind as a bat, cannot see anything, with a ton of pain in my eye. I went to a doctor, and the doctor said, well, you've got an infection. I was like, well, I've been using water. They're like, water's not going not to fix it. Well, I jumped in the ocean, salt water. That's not going to be sufficient. I was like, what do I need? He's like, you need a drug. And I was like, okay, well, what kind? And they gave me an ointment. And this ointment, when I applied it on my eye, it took just a few hours. And then by the second day, by the third day, it was healed. I needed ointment for my eye because my eye was bad. And I couldn't see what was real and what was true. I could not get clarity because of the brokenness in my eye, the infection in my eye. I needed something that I could not get on my own to heal my eye so I could see clearly. Are you picking up what I'm putting down right now? I think that we all need grace for our eyes. That the ointment God gives us is grace. Philip Yancey has this great line. He says this, that we all need grace-healed eyes. That the church needs grace-healed eyes to see the potential and the possibility in people. And this is the difference between Jesus and the Pharisee. See, see grace, grace is important because grace gives us what we need. Here's, here's one thing I want you to write down. Grace Grace allows us to see others like God sees them. Simon, she sees a sort of woman who's sinful and unsalvageable, but Jesus sees a daughter who he died for. Simon sees a shameful mess in this woman, yet Jesus sees a masterpiece. Simon sees a lost cause, but Jesus sees a life filled with potential. I remember attending a church a number of years ago who had a list of rules and regulations on what you were allowed to wear if you were to walk into the room. And I thought before you were greeted with a welcome, they were telling you what, who belonged here and who didn't. And yet I wonder if we, while we don't broadcast it on the front doors of a church, might be broadcasting it on the front doors of our heart. By the way that we interact with people that can't seem to kick that habit or have done the unthinkable or that person's clearly not one of us, or his language, it isn't safe for the little ears in the family. And we can begin to see people the way that Simon saw them if our eyes are not healed with the ointment of grace so that we can see people the way that God sees them. Dorothy Day has this beautiful quote. She says, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. So what would God say about how much you love him based upon the categories of people that you love the least. Because what Simon saw was a flawed woman. 
But what Jesus saw was a woman who would be forgiven. See, we need grace-healed eyes, not just so that we can see other people correctly, but we need grace-healed eyes so that we can see ourselves correctly. I mean, here is Simon. Simon who knows the religious texts. Simon who knows what the Messiah is supposed to look like. Simon who has studied the Bible backward and forward, and yet God is at his table, and Simon cannot see him. See, Simon in some ways has believed that his performance and his goodness is sufficient so that he can be in a position to investigate and judge Jesus. Which sounds absurd, doesn't it? It sounds absurd to think that Jesus could be at the table right across from you and you could spend your time evaluating whether or not he's good enough or not. And yet, if we're not careful, a little bit of Pharisee can grow inside of all of us. And we become Simon faster than we realized. Especially when things don't go our way. We begin to say things like, I don't believe in a God who could. Or, I don't believe in a God who would. Well, time out. When did you get to determine what God could or would do? Well, I, I, can't, I can't believe in a God who would allow. Well, hold on. Who gave you the right to determine who God is and who God is not? God, how dare you? God, after all I've done, God, you've got some explaining to do. And I think it's important for us to remember that just because Jesus wants to sit at your table doesn't mean that Jesus isn't always and still in charge of it. Jesus is not available for our investigation. Jesus is available for our worship. And Simon misses it. And I would say this, that the more religious you are, the more you've been in settings like this, to be honest, the more likely you are to be infected with pride, infected with pride in the eye, inevitably blurring your understanding of your own need for grace. But grace is that ointment. Grace is that ointment that heals our eyes, that gets us off of ourselves and on to God. Because grace not only allows us to see others the way God sees them, grace not only allows us to see ourselves as we really are, not that good, but grace also allows us to see God. See, Simon missed God who was right in front of him. And he treated Jesus as if he was insignificant. He gave Jesus no regard, no welcome, no hospitality. And this is exactly what Jesus calls him out for. In Luke chapter 7, he says, you did not give me any water for my feet. Again, never breaking eyes with the woman. Simon, you did not give me any water for my feet. But this woman, she wet my feet with her, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon, you did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. See, in, in ancient Jewish history, there were three ways that you would regard a dignified guest. The first one is that when they walked into your home, you would give them a pail of water to wash their feet because they had trudged through mud, and Simon has not done this for Jesus. It takes the tears of the woman to wash Jesus' feet. You would anoint a man's head with oil as he was the dignified guest because there would be an aroma that that oil would set off so everybody in the room knew who the important person was. 
And Simon did not take the time to pour out oil on the head of Jesus to honor and dignify him. You would, you would take a moment and kiss the honored guest because a kiss was a sign of welcome. And yet this man, Simon, would not welcome Jesus. He simply watched him. And yet this woman would kiss the feet of Jesus. Simon had a front row seat to the Savior, and he missed him because he was focused on religious do's and don'ts, and his eyes had been infected with pride that he couldn't see what was in front of him without access to grace. And we sit back and look at this story and I would imagine as we look at the woman who's saved by grace, the sinful woman, and as we look at Simon the Pharisee, we say, Simon, how could you? How could you miss Jesus? He was right at your table. And yet I might ask you in this room as you walked in on a Sunday and we sang songs and honored Jesus, if people were to peer over the edge of heaven and watched how you worshipped your Savior this morning, would have been more like the sinful, saved woman who poured out everything she had in care and emotion and in cost because she knew what Jesus had done for him. Or was the way that we would have sang this morning been more indicative of Simon the Pharisee? I'm here, Jesus. See, if we're not careful, we who stand in religious settings and circles can live in a rhythm where we begin to treat the Savior of the world as if he's insignificant. And we'll watch people that are demonstrative, that are emotional, that are passionate about worshiping Jesus and look at them through the lens of Simon and say, what is wrong with them? And I might ask, no, 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 what is wrong with you? What is wrong with us that we might gather every Sunday and miss the beauty of Jesus at our table and treat him as, as, as insignificant? And if you're going to clap, let it not be a golf clap. Because we golf clap Jesus. Because we've forgotten. We've forgotten that we're the sinful, shameful woman in the story. We've forgotten how much he's got us from. We've forgotten how much he's saved us from. We've forgotten how much he's delivered us from. We've forgotten how much grace has been poured out in our life. We've forgotten the police officer in the cop car who didn't send us to jail but gave us a second chance and don't realize that wasn't a guy. That was God working through a person. We forgot that when we woke up this morning, the breath in our lungs is a gift from our Heavenly Father. And we look at David who says, I'll become even more undignified than this. And we say, well, I'm, I'm a little too dignified because I have an education and I've made something of myself and I live in the suburbs and I've got a 401k Let me ask you this question. 
when did you become too good and too put together to worship Jesus like he deserved to be worshiped? Because if we are not careful, we will look at Simon the Pharisee and say, how dare he? And heaven would look at you and say, how dare you? Like parents, can I lean on this just for a minute? Your kids get the cue on how important Jesus is based upon what you do when he's in the room. What would you be teaching them if they were watching you? See, we need perspective. We need grace. And we need that grace to permeate our souls so that we might remember just how much God has done. Luke concludes this story, and he says this. He says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And this is where the story culminates in a very interesting way. Because when Jesus utters out of his mouth, your sins have been forgiven, that's the receipt that the Pharisees need. That's the thing that the Pharisees will read when Jesus is tried because that makes him a blasphemer and a liar and a man who claims to be the son of God. And Jesus would hang on a cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus would lay in a tomb, everybody thinking the story was over, when, when heaven was actually just rumbling behind the scenes. Because there would be a moment where that man who forgave a sinful woman in Luke 7, who said that he was going to forgive the whole world when he was on the cross, would prove that he could when he stepped out of a grave, leaving sin, Satan, sin, shame, and death in the tomb where it belongs. And this is the gift of grace that Jesus makes good on his promises, that he's actually worthy of our praise because he's not a hype motivational speaker or a sidewalk magician or a guy with a couple of cute ideas to put on a poster or a mug. He's the savior of the world who enters into our stories when we do not deserve him, who pulls up a table to our table, pulls up a chair to our table and invites us to a meal with him. A God who's kind enough not to turn his back but to turn his face and his eyes to every single one of us like he did to that sinful woman. Imagine you're her in the room. Simon has hurled his insults. The crowd has murmured at the foolishness of this woman. Everybody knows what she's about. Everybody knows what she's done. Everybody knows she doesn't belong there. And of all of the people to look at, Jesus gets eye to eye with her. And he says, your sins have been forgiven. This is grace, friends. 
that God gets eye to eye with you and says, your sins have been forgiven and you belong to me. So I want to invite you to stand as we close our time. And as you do, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and have a moment of reflection because I would imagine that there are some of us in the room that find ourselves in different places in the story. And I want you to locate yourself in the story today. For some of you, the place you find yourself in the story is you are like the sinful woman. You've been asking the question, what does Jesus think about me? What does Jesus think about all the wrong I've done? All the shame I carry, all the regret I carry. And perhaps what you think Jesus thinks about you has been affected by what religious people have said to you. Because you've been in rooms filled with Simons who want to point the finger, who want to tell you you're not good enough or you don't belong. If that's you today, you're asking the question, do I really belong to Jesus? Does he really have room for me? If that's you today, with every eye closed in the room, I just want you to open a hand because I've got good news for you today. Here's the good news. Jesus looks you eye to eye and says, you belong with me. There's always room for you at my table, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what regret you carry. It can be forgiven. But I would imagine, especially on a Sunday, that for many of us, we find ourselves in another category. And it's going to take a degree of honesty for us to even acknowledge it. For some of us, it's going to need or involve some grace, some ointment on our eyes. But if we're honest, we are more like Simon the Pharisee in this story. We have treated Jesus as if he's insignificant. We come to church looking for entertainment as opposed to coming to express our love to him. We look at the woman who breaks the alabaster jar and gives a year's worth of wages and we can't even imagine giving our time to Jesus and opening his word. And if we're not careful, we've become people that give Jesus a head nod because we know he's in the room. Give Jesus a golf clap because maybe we should. And we forget just how much grace we've been given. And Jesus would invite you to repent the same way he would invite every religious person he came into contact with who was religious but not transformed, religious but whose love had waned. And Jesus would say, would you love me again? If you would say, God, I need your grace to love you like you deserve, would you open your hands now? And there's another group of people I find it interesting in the story that there's the guests who say, who is this man that he forgives even sins? And perhaps for some of you in the room or those of you that are watching online, you're asking that question, who is this man 
Luke chapter 7, verse 50, I want you to note that it's not tears that saved the woman. It's not the alabaster jar that saved the woman. It's not her, te- her crying or her hair laid out that saved her. Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. What saves us is not what we do, but what God has done. And I would invite you today, if you need Jesus, if you need faith to believe in him, perhaps for the first time or for the first time in a long time, would you open your hands now as well? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray. I pray that we would realize that you are a good God, worthy of our best praise. That, God, you are worthy of all honor and glory. That you're not a golf clap God. But you are a God who has moved heaven and earth to invite us into a forever relationship with you. So, Jesus, for those of us that have been living like Pharisees, judging others, criticizing others, placing people in categories, would you allow us to get our eyes on you? Would you allow grace to change us to worship you as you deserve? God, for those of us that feel like we're on the outside looking in, like there isn't room for us at the table, God, would you speak the better word to us today? That you meet us eye to eye and invite us to sit with you. And that, God, for those of us that are asking the question, who is this man that he would even forgive sins? God, would you remind everyone in this room and those that are watching online that salvation is found in no one else but in Christ and Christ alone. And you're still in the business of forgiveness. You're still in the business of changing lives. You're still in the business of transformation. We trust you and believe you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.